You are listening to the First Baptist Church Martin podcast. For more information on our church, visit fbcmartin.org. You got your Bible this morning. Let me invite you to turn to Psalm 61. Psalm 61. You saw on the uh, transition video just a few moments ago. We're beginning something today in the Psalms. Uh, We'll be continuing this for the next several weeks all throughout the month of July and then even into the month of August as we are going through the summer month and then wrapping up in August. But we're going to spend the majority of our time in the book of Psalms. We did this a couple of years ago, spent the summer in the Psalms Uh, We didn't do that last year, but we're going to do it again this summer, and I'm excited about that. And this morning, we're going to start with Psalm 61. I don't know if there are any boxing fans in the room this morning, but I grew up in the home of a man who loved to watch boxing. My dad was just, um, he was just captivated by two men getting together in a ring and slugging it out. He would love a good fight. Didn't want to see it out on the streets, but you put two guys in a ring, and uh, my dad, if he could find a good fight on television, he would, he would watch it. And, uh, and so as a kid growing up, I found myself being exposed, sitting in the living room with my dad when this was going on. I found myself being exposed to some of the great fighters of yesterday. Now, some of you younger people, you may not have any idea what I'm talking about, but some of you who have a little age on you may recognize a few of these names. Anybody ever heard of Sugar Ray Leonard? Yeah, Sugar Ray. He was, he was big time back when I was a teenager growing up. And then Roberto Duran. Anybody ever hear of Roberto Duran? Well, Roberto Duran was the number one contender in that day for the title that was held by Sugar Ray Leonard. Sugar Ray Leonard was the champion in his weight division. And uh, Roberto Duran had, uh, has made his way up by winning all of these other fights to where he had positioned himself to be the one to challenge Sugar Ray for the title. And he did that back in 1980. Their first fight was in Montreal. It was called the Brawl in Montreal. And everybody was captivated in the buildup to this fight because Roberto Duran, even though Sugar Ray Leonard was an outstanding boxer, Roberto Duran was said to have hands of stone. Like when he hit you, it hurt. He was also said to be one of the meanest, toughest men to ever step in the ring, regardless of weight division. And so when they met in Montreal that year, it was everything that had been hyped up to be. It went 15 rounds, and in the end, Roberto Duran won that fight by unanimous decision. But it wasn't long until Sugar Ray challenged him again for the title, to get back the title that he had lost in Montreal. And so that same year, later in the year, in November, they met in the Superdome in New Orleans. And... uh, And Sugar Ray, this time, was ready for the challenge. He came out swinging, and he was was fast. He was moving around the ring. He was landing punches on Duran, both to the body and to the face. They were just devastating. And it was clear from the very beginning that this fight had had swung in in Sugar Ray's direction. Like, it was trending that it it was going to be a unanimous decision for him. 
But nobody could anticipate what would happen in the eighth round of that fight. The boxers came out in the eighth round. They're not even throwing punches at this point. And all of a sudden, Roberto Duran just stops. He turns to the referee and he throws up his hands. Now, Sugar Ray thought that it was a trick. And so when Roberto Duran threw up his hands, Sugar Ray came lunging in and was still throwing punches. But then Roberto Duran uttered these words. There's a picture of it, if we can throw it up there. This is when Roberto Duran had finally thrown up his hands and he had looked at the referee and he said, no mas, no mas, no more, no more, no more box. And then, of course, Sugar Ray throws up his hands because he knows he's, he's won the fight. See, Roberto Duran was at a place where he knew that this wasn't going well. He was beaten. He had been battered for seven rounds. And he'd reached a place in the fight where he just couldn't take it anymore. He just threw up his hands and said, no more, no more, I'm done. Have you ever been at a place like that in your life? Have you ever been in a place where you just feel so beaten up and so beaten down? I mean, your circumstances are so bad, your problems are so tough, your situation seems so hopeless that you just want to throw up your hands and say, I, I'm done. I quit. That's exactly where David was when he wrote the 61st Psalm. David was going through a very difficult period in his life. And it's not that David had not been through difficult times previously. He was no stranger to adversity. If you know anything about his early life, especially after Samuel showed up at his house and told him that he was going to be the next king over Israel, things didn't get better for David. Things became increasingly more complicated and difficult in his life. He had spent years running from Saul, who had gone crazy and was jealous of David and was trying to kill him. And so that was a very difficult season in David's life, but he had lived through it. He'd come to the other side of that, but now he's in the middle of something else that was probably the lowest point in his life. His son Absalom, it's believed, had rebelled against his father. There's a lot of things that led up to that, some of it because of David's own poor decisions in the past, but now his son had become estranged from his father. He wanted to take the throne away from his father, and he had built up this coalition this group of followers that he had now, and he was in position to run David out of Jerusalem and take the throne for himself. And that's exactly what happened. David fled Jerusalem, fearing for his life. You can read about it in 2 Samuel. And during that season where David is on the run, trying to flee from Absalom, he was at probably the lowest point in his life. His family is a mess his world just seems to be falling apart. He's fearing for his life. He's uncertain about his future. David was discouraged. He was beaten up and he was beaten down. And he had every reason in the world to throw up his hands and say, I'm done. I quit. No more, no more, no more. But he doesn't do that. Instead, what David does is he turns to the Lord in his distress. 
And he writes about that here in Psalm 61, the help that he received from the Lord in the midst of this trying circumstance, in the middle of this difficult season in his life. And I believe that he writes about it not just to remember for himself what God did during this season of his life, but he writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for people like you and me who would come after him, who would find ourselves at moments and in places in life where we're beaten up, we're beaten down, we're discouraged, and we want to quit. But David says you don't have to. Not if you turn your attention and your focus to the Lord. Let's read about it. Psalm 61, beginning with verse 1. Let's stand in honor of God in the reading of his word to us today. David says, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacle forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. You will prolong the king's life, his years, as many generations. He shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. And so I will sing praise to your name forever, that I may daily perform my vows. Father, we're grateful for your word. We pray that you would teach us from it today. Help us to learn, Lord that our hope is in you. I believe that in this room today, there are people who are going through some very difficult things in their life. God, lead them today to the rock who is higher than us all. And may we find our help and our refuge in Jesus Christ, our Lord. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to move through this psalm rather quickly, but there are three things that I want you to notice as we break down these eight verses. First of all, I want you to notice the prayer that David prayed. The psalm begins with a prayer. He says, hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, he says, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. What David does in the midst of his circumstances is that he turns his heart and his attention toward heaven. He's in the middle of something that is over his head, something that he knows he cannot handle and he cannot deal with on his own. And if he tries, it is going to crush him. The weight of his problems are going to crush him. But David in this moment realizes, in this season of his life, realizes that he doesn't have to deal with this alone, that he can turn and bring his, his problems, his situation to the Lord. And that's what he does. He says, when my heart is overwhelmed, I turn to you. Hear my cry. Attend to my prayer, O God. Let me ask you, where do you turn when you are overwhelmed in life? Have you ever been overwhelmed? I mean, we all have been. And if you never have been overwhelmed, you just hang on. Buckle up because it's coming soon enough. There's a time when life is just bigger than all of us. 
and our problems are too many and they're too great for us to be able to handle on our own, where do you go and where do you turn when you find yourself in that position in life? Truth is, some of us turn to ourselves and we try to figure it out on our own how we're going to deal with this and how we're going to get through this. Then some people turn to others in their life. They look for help from others to, to deliver them or to help them make it through their problems. Some people find themselves turning to alcohol or perhaps to drugs as some kind of escape, some kind of way of dealing with their trouble. Some people even turn to food. They get stressed out. They get overwhelmed in life. They just eat because it gives some momentary comfort in the midst of their situation. But that's all that it is. When, when you look to those things, all it can offer you is just momentary comfort, momentary help. And in fact, some of those things that I just mentioned never make things better in your life. It only thing, it makes things more complicated and more difficult sometimes. But what does David do? In the midst of his circumstances, he turns to the Lord. He says, when my heart is overwhelmed, I turn to you. And from the end of the earth, I cry out to you. Now, when he talks about being at the end of the earth, he's not talking about necessarily where he was geographically. Even though David had fled Jerusalem, and he's on the run, and he's probably far out there somewhere away from Jerusalem, I don't believe that that's what he's talking about here. I believe that David is referencing where he was spiritually in his life. He felt like he was off in a far country. He felt like he was all out there in the world, all by himself. And there's even a part of him that's wondering, where is God in all of this? Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to that place in your life where you just feel like you're off in a distant land and God just seems so far away from you? I mean, we all know what it's like to be alienated and separated from God because of our sin. We were all in that position and in that predicament at one time before we met Jesus Christ. But I'm talking about just in life and in life circumstances. Has there ever been a moment, even as a follower of Jesus, that you've wondered to yourself, God, where are you? I mean, you look all around you, you look at what you're going through, and God doesn't seem to be anywhere close. And that's where David was. God, I don't see you in this. I, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know why this is happening to me. I feel like I'm off in a distant land, all alone. But then all of a sudden, David realizes that he's not alone. He realizes that for those who know the Lord, for those who belong to the Lord, there is never a moment in your life when God is not near. He's always close by. In fact, I think that David is perhaps in this moment in his life recalling things that he had written earlier in his life. Maybe in Psalm 139, he's thinking about what he wrote when he said, where can I go to escape from your presence? Where can I flee from your spirit? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be as light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide me from you. But the night and the night shines as the day, the darkness and the light are both alike to you. You know what David is saying? There's nowhere in this world that I can go to escape from God. There's nowhere that I can go where God is not near. If I'm on the mountaintop, he's there. But if I'm down in the lowest valley, he's there. There's nowhere 
that I can go where God is not there as well. Even when I feel like my world is all dark, God sees in the night just as if it were day. There's nothing that hides me from you. You know exactly where I am. You know exactly where, where, what I'm going through. And David says in that moment, as I realize this, as I realize that though I may be feeling far away from you, you're not far away at all, what do I do? I cry out to you. I cry out to you when I'm overwhelmed. And there you are. And what does he pray? He prays that God would lead him to the rock that is higher than himself. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The rock that he's picturing here, or that he's describing here, is God himself. And the hope and the assurances that he has in his life because of his relationship to God. It'd be a good study for you to go back in, into the book of Psalms and just look at how many times this image and this picture of God as a rock is given to us. Well over 20 times in the Psalms, God is referred to as a rock, or he is our rock. It's something that even spills over into other parts of Scripture, into the New Testament. Let me give you just a few examples. Psalm 18, verse 1, David says, The Lord is my rock in whom I will trust. That same Psalm, verse 31, Who is a rock except our God? Psalm 62, verse 2, which is the next Psalm in the book of Psalms. A psalm that he also wrote during this season of his life. Here's what David says. He says, he, talking about God, he only is my rock and my salvation. God is my rock. There is no rock except our God. All other ground is sinking sand. The only thing that you can stand on in the midst of life's troubles is the solid rock of God himself. Jesus carries this over into the New Testament when he's talking to his disciples in Caesarea Philippi. After he's asked Peter, who do men say that I am? Who do you think that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Jesus looks at him and says, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And it's upon this rock, not Peter, but upon the rock of his confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, the Savior, the one sent by God to rescue us from our sins. It's on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells the story about two men who went out to build their houses and one man went out and built his house on the rock, he said. Storms come, winds blow, rains beat on that house, but it stands because it's got a solid foundation. And then Jesus explains later that the rock that I'm speaking of is my word. He who hears my word and does it, he who puts their trust in me and obeys me is one who is building his home, his life, if you would, on the rock that will not fail. This picture is all throughout Scripture. And David, in the midst of his circumstances, when everything seems to be falling apart, cries out to God and says, God, my heart is overwhelmed. I don't know what to do, but lead me to the rock that is higher than I. In other words, the only thing that I can hope in, the only thing that I can trust in in this moment of my life is my relationship to you. 
and what you have said and what you've promised in your word. So remind me, God, remind me to put my trust in you. Help me not to come over, become overwhelmed with fears and doubts, but Lord, to trust in what you've said and what you've promised in your word. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And as he prays this, look what happens. David begins to pray, God, help me in my distress. Help me in my circumstances. And suddenly, God begins to remind David of things that he had done in David's life previously. For in verse 3, David says, you have been a shelter to me. He doesn't say you will be. He says you have been a shelter to me. A strong tower from the enemy. It's like I said a few moments ago, this is not the first time that David has been in distress. It's not the first time that David has faced problems in his life. David's been through things before, and now he's going through probably the the, the worst season of his life. He's overwhelmed. He cries out to God, I need help. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Remind me, God, of who you are. Remind me of what you've done for me. Remind me of what you've promised me. And all of a sudden, David's mind begins to wander back into the past in those moments in his life when he had been in previous trouble, when he had gone through times and seasons of turmoil and adversity in his life, and he recalls how God back then had been faithful, how God had been a shelter for him, how God had been a strong tower for him. It's as if God is saying to David as he recalls the past, I have been faithful then, I will be faithful now. You can trust me. Even when you don't understand, even when you're overwhelmed, you can put your trust and your hope in me because the God who has been faithful in your past will be faithful in your present and faithful in your future. And as David thinks about this, His heart explodes with joy, and he says in verse 4, I will abide in your tabernacle forever, and I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Now, the tabernacle that he's talking about, it can also be translated tent. I don't know what version of Scripture you're using. It's tabernacle in my Bible. It could be tent in your Bible, but it's talking about a temporary dwelling. And what David is thinking about here is he's thinking about the tabernacle of meeting. It's the place where the Ark of the Covenant was housed at that time. Remember, the temple hadn't been built. That won't be built until Solomon comes along. And so up until now, they had this tabernacle of meeting that traveled with the Jews as they were moving through the wilderness. And it is still the place where the Ark of the Covenant resides. It would go with the people wherever they went. And they'd carry the Ark with them, and they'd place the Ark in the, in the tabernacle of meeting. And, and it was there where the Ark of the Covenant rested, that it is believed that God would come down and make his presence known among the people. He would reveal his glory in the midst of his people. When they looked at the Ark of the Covenant, they were reminded that God is with them, that God is near to us, that God is for us. And David says, He says here that I will abide in your tabernacle forever. It is David crying out to God that he wants to be as near to God as he can possibly be. See, David David was a king. He wasn't a priest. 
And so David did not have the privileges and the access to go into the Holy of Holies, into the place where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And yet still, David says, I want to be as close as I can be. I want to be in your tabernacle. I want to be where your presence is. I want to be as near and close to God as possible in my life. Because David knows that that is where his help is found. That's where he finds shelter in life's storms. That's where he finds a strong tower against life's enemies. It's in the presence of the Lord. And so he says, I want to be in your presence. I want to abide in your presence, not for a moment until I get through this. I want to abide in your presence forever. I want you to be near to me. I want to be near to you. I want to be as close to you as I can be. And then he says this. He says, I want to trust. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Now keep in mind this picture of the Ark of the Covenant. At the ends of the Ark of the Covenant were these two angelic creatures called cherubim. Wings spread wide. And so, so you've got these angelic creatures on the top of the Ark. And then in the middle, in between the wings of these cherubim, is what was called the mercy seat. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark rested. He would carry with him the blood of of the sacrifice to sprinkle on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And as he did that, if it's an acceptable sacrifice, the glory of God comes down in that place, in the place that is covered by the blood. Follow me. David says, I want to be as close and as near to you as I can be, God, because that's where I find my help. That's where my refuge comes from. That's my strength. That's the only way I'm going to get through this. I want to be as close to you as I can be. But David knows that the only way to experience the presence of God in his life is to be in that place that is covered by the blood. If we were Pentecostals, we'd be having a fit right now. Amen? (laughs) So you're Baptist, you just sit there and stare like a calf at a new gate. This is glorious stuff. Because think about this. You and I this morning, you and I are at a place that David never was in his life. Not not that David didn't have a relationship with God. Not that David was not near to God in his life. But your relationship and my relationship to God is so much different than that of David. Because David couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. David couldn't go into the very presence of God. But when Jesus Christ went to the cross, when he died on that cross, as he is shedding his blood for our sin... The Bible says that in the temple where the curtain was that separated the rest of the temple from the Holy of Holies where the ark rested, that as Jesus is shedding his blood, the veil is torn. Not from bottom to top. It's not something man did. It's torn from the top down to the bottom. God does this. God splits open the curtain symbolizing that the way now has been made through Jesus Christ for you and I to come into the place that was once off limits, that was once forbidden us. We can come into the very presence of God now through the blood of Jesus Christ. So what is David saying in this, in this prayer? David is saying, listen, you're overwhelmed. Your only hope is God, but the only way to God is through the blood. The only way to God is through the blood. 
Remind me, God, of who you are. Remind me, God, of what you've done. Remind me, God, of what you've done for me. And let me rest and put my hope in that. I put my trust in you, who is my shelter. You are my strong tower. And the only reason I have any hope is because I am in that place that is covered by your blood. And so there's the prayer that David prays. And after David prays this prayer, and after he says this, notice what he does. He, he puts a little word in there that's oftentimes overlooked, skipped over. He puts the word selah. You know what that means? Let's just, let's just stop right here for a moment. This is a song. So it's like a pause in the song where you just stop everything. The music stops. The singing stops. Everybody stops. And you just think about and you reflect on what has just been sung. What has just been said? David says, listen, when life is too much, when life is overwhelming, when you don't know what to do, you put your trust in God. You turn to God. You seek the presence of God in your life, and you know that there is a way into his presence through the blood. Now let's stop and let's think about that. Let's worship for a bit. Now after he does that, he moves on to the second thing in the psalm. And that's the promise that now he rests on. David has remembered that no matter what's going on in his life, no matter what his circumstances look like, God is there. God is near. And in God he can trust. And so he says in verse 5, For you, O God, have heard my vows. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But you've heard my vows. David had made commitments to God in his life. Promises to God. He made vows to God. And he says, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Now, the word heritage there is inheritance. You've given me an inheritance. And the inheritance is this. The inheritance is all that God has promised for his children. All that God has promised for his people. And so what David is saying is that I'm included. I have been included in all that God has promised for his people. All the promises of God that have been given to his people are mine now to claim and it's not because of David's vows, but because David is among those who fear the Lord in this world. You know what that means? It means those who have put their trust in God, those who are in awe of God, those who have believed in God and believed on God. That's what gives us access into these glorious promises that God has given to his children. And he says, for you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name, and you will prolong the king's life, his years, as many generations, and he shall abide before God forever. Oh, prepare mercy and truth which may preserve him. Now, we don't have time to drill down real deep here, but I want to give you what he's talking about. He's now recalling, he's thinking about the, the promises of God that have been given to his people, and there's one promise in particular that David's thinking about here. Because think of what's going on in his life. David's been run out of Jerusalem. Absalom is contending for the throne. But David remembers, David remembers what God has said to him previously. What did God tell David? He told David earlier that from your line, a king will sit on the throne forever. There is a king who's coming to rule, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now, who was he talking about? He wasn't talking about Solomon. God was talking about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the king 
of all kings, the Lord above all lords. That there is one who is coming greater than David, greater than all, who will occupy the throne, who will sit as king over heaven and on earth, who will reign over his enemies, who will crush and destroy his enemies, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. And David, even though it, his world is falling to pieces over here, is able to look beyond the present into the future and what God has promised to know that it doesn't matter what my circumstances look like. It doesn't matter what's happening in my world right now. It doesn't even matter what I feel right now. What I know is true is this, is that God has made a promise that a king is coming who will occupy the throne and nobody's going to knock him off. And David knows that he's a part of that kingdom. Because he's among those in the world who fear the Lord and have put their trust in God. Let me tell you something, I don't know what's going on in your world right now. I don't know what's happening in your life right now. I don't know what your circumstances may be right now. But I can tell you this, you need to get your eyes off of your circumstances and stop living just in the present. And you need to look ahead into the future that God has promised and prepared for you. There's nowhere in the Bible that we're told that down here on earth, while we're living this side of heaven, that things are going to go our way, that life is going to be easy, that we're not going to have problems, there are not going to be struggles and trials. In fact, the Bible tells us just the opposite. But the Bible does tell us that in the midst of all of this stuff that we have to deal with in this life, we can look beyond the present into the future and hope in a king and in a kingdom that is coming one day of which we shall be a part and that will never end. And that's our hope and that's our inheritance. So it doesn't matter what is going on right now, I know that something better is on the horizon. Something better is coming. And David rested in that promise. And then notice the last thing that he does. As David thinks about this and he rests in this promise of God, now he circles back around and he says in verse 8, he says, so I will sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. I'll sing praise to your name forever. He doesn't say, I'll sing praise to your name for a moment. I'll sing praise to your name for a while. He says, I'll sing praise to your name forever that I may daily perform my vows. A couple of quick things, and we'll close. First thing I want you to notice is this, is that nothing in David's life has changed as far as his earthly circumstances when he writes this. David doesn't say, oh, I'll praise your name because you got me out of this. I'll praise your name because you, you've delivered me from Absalom. I'll praise your name because uh, everything has gone back to the way it was now, and I'm back in Jerusalem, and I'm back on the throne, and so I'll, I'll praise your name. Now, he's praising God even though he's still a man on the run. His circumstances haven't changed, but what has changed is David's perspective. And what David realizes is that it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what's going on in this world. I know what's coming, and I know who's coming, and I know what kingdom that I really belong to, and I know what king is going to reign forever, and I know that I'm a part of his kingdom. And so because I know all of that, it doesn't matter what's going on with me, it doesn't matter what's happening to me, I can still praise and exalt his name forever. I praise him. And David says, in doing that, I am 
fulfilling the vows that I have made. Now, this is the second time that he mentions vows. He mentions it in verse 5. He comes back around and mentions it in verse 8. Now, I told you in verse 5, I do believe that David in his life, just like all of us, promised God some things. I mean, when, when, when you and I come to follow Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of our life, we are recipients of His mercy and His grace and His love. It's by His grace that we've been saved, not through anything that we've done, but it's by His grace that we've been delivered from our sin. And yet at the same time, when we come to Him, we give Him our life and we devote ourselves to following Him who has now become the King and the Lord over our life. And so we do promise God things. But when David comes to verse 8, David says, attached to this whole idea of I'm going to praise you forever, he says, as I praise you forever, I am fulfilling my vows. And it's as if David perhaps is being reminded or wants to remind us that, listen, what God desires from us, more than anything else in the world, what God desires from us and what he deserves from us is our worship. It's not the stuff that we can do for God that makes Him love us. What God desires is for us to come to that place in our life where we acknowledge who He is, when we acknowledge what He has done, when our hearts are captured by Him and by His love so that we out of love and thanksgiving and gratitude to God for all that He is in our life, give Him the thing that He's worthy of most, and that is our praise and our all. And David says, I will do this, even in the midst of all this stuff that's going on in my life, even though my problems and my circumstances haven't gone away and nothing's changed, I do know where my hope is. I do know who my hope is in. And I do know that my day of deliverance is coming one day. My king is coming one day. His kingdom is coming one day, of which I shall be a part. Because I have put my hope and my trust in him. And because of that, I will praise his name forever. And fulfill my vows. Is that not good stuff? I just believe there's somebody here who needs this today. And if they're not out there, maybe he's standing right here. We need to be reminded where our hope is, where our hope comes from. It comes from the Lord. But the only way to have this hope is to be a person who has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. You don't earn your way into the promises of God and into the kingdom of God. You don't get there by being good enough, by doing enough. The only way into the kingdom is is to recognize how lousy and miserable and wretched and poor and undeserving you really are. And to confess that to God and realize that even though all of that is true of you, God loves you anyway. Enough that he sent his own son into the world to die for you 
raised him up from the dead so that by faith in him you could be forgiven and you could be brought into the very presence of God and given all of the promises of God, become a part of a kingdom that shall never end. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. If you were encouraged by today's sermon, leave us a rating and subscribe to the podcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church Martin, visit fpcmartin.org.